Welcome to the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine Research Learning Series, or RLS. These are a collection of lectures, podcasts, and webinars on a variety of research topics focused on mostly pearls and pitfalls in research to assist novice researchers in successfully completing their research interests and getting them published. I am Dr. Lynn Rapolo and one of the emergency medicine faculty at the University of Texas Southwestern, and I am delighted to host today's session on common pitfalls in study design and statistical methods. Before I introduce our guest, who is more than qualified to speak on this topic, I wanted to take a brief moment to provide a brief synopsis of some of his impressive accomplishments. Dr. Dan Mayer is an experienced specialist with a demonstrated history of working in the medical practice industry and medical education. He has retired from active clinical practice of emergency medicine and is a former professor of emergency medicine at Albany Medical College and course director of a four-year longitudinal required course called Evidence-Based Healthcare. He was an associate editor of MedPortal and is now an associate decision editor for JSEP Open and Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. He is a peer reviewer for multiple medical and medical education journals. He is also author of Essential Evidence-Based Medicine, published by Cambridge University in 2004 and 2010, and just finished his third edition, which is in press. He is also author of Case Studies in Emergency Medicine, published in 1991, again in 1996, and in 2010. Dr. Mary is skilled in medical care consulting, evidence-based medicine, emergency medicine, and patient safety through reduction in medical diagnostic errors. Dr. Mayer graduated from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Kearney Hospital, and Eastern Maine Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Mayer. So happy to have you here. Great. Thank you so much, Lynn. I am really honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I hope I have some insights to share with our audience that will be a little different. I wanted to start with a very important question. Given your extensive experience as an editor and as a reviewer, what do you think are the most common fatal flaws or reasons why a research study manuscript is rejected? I'd have to say it was badly done methods. If the methods are bad, the results won't be particularly useful, no matter how good the data appears to be or how good the authors have manipulated the data to come out with an interesting result. When I read a paper, I'm looking for potential biases, and the more of these that I find, the more likely that they actually are occurring in real life. The more likely also that they would represent a fatal flaw, which would pretty much be a flaw that's so bad that the study shouldn't be published, at least not in the current form. Uh, number two is very common, and that's poor presentation of the results, either in graphs or tables, and it's usually done somewhat subconsciously, but not always, to make the reader feel that the results are more powerful than they really are. And this could be done by having um, manipulating the graph so that one axis is bigger than another and the results look bigger than they actually are, or by having a table that doesn't include all the results or includes only certain results, or even just manipulating the statistics to use a, an inappropriate statistic in presenting the data. Graphs should always be clear and accurate 
it and without any biases in the way that they're drawn. That's a big one. And the last, the next one is using bad statistics. There are lots of different statistical tests out there. And what I sometimes find is authors seem to go out of their way to find an unusual statistical test to prove something rather than just reporting the results, regardless of how good or bad they are. The process of science is very slow. And you know we have to depend both on positive and negative studies. That's what moves us forward. And the negative ones should be there to question what we're doing and what direction future researchers should take. There are lots of ethical issues uh, relating to publication bias and failure of journals to publish negative studies. Uh, I consider those to be ethical and political issues. I'll leave those to someone else to talk about. But from a very pure scientific perspective, I think we've gotten carried away with the need to only publish positive studies and therefore for the researchers to try and make their studies as positive as they can, whether they really are or not. And the last is bad writing. Uh, I do review a lot of studies that are written by people who are not native English speakers, and I, I feel for them because they've done some interesting research, much of which deserves to be published in the premier emergency medicine journals. And I I usually ask them to find someone in their group who's a native English speaker who can help with their grammar and syntax and make it flow better. Such great points, Dr. Mayer. I just wanted to add to what you're mentioning about poor writing. In regards to the methods section, I don't think people realize exactly how different it is from regular writing. It needs to be written very clearly and concisely so individuals reading it can understand what you did and how you did it should they want to repeat your study. It's also typically written in the past tense except for generalizations and conclusions. Wouldn't you agree? I would totally agree with you. And basically, anyone reading your paper should be able to replicate your experiment exactly. That's the bottom line, is you give enough information that me coming in, not knowing anything about the topic or anything about what you've done, should be able to set up the experiment and duplicate it. So Dr. Mary, it seems that many studies have issues with the study design itself. So thought we could break it down into some of its components and was hoping that you can comment on these pitfalls that you encounter when you're reading these studies in medical research. Okay. Um, we, we talked at length already about the need to give as much information as possible and for, for you to present it in as clear and concise a manner as possible when you're describing your research. As with anything, the devil's in the details. And um, basically, if you're lucky enough to have a friendly English major as a friend, um, ask them to read the manuscript before you submit it. Giving the manuscript to somebody who won't understand a bit of what you're saying really allows them to focus in on how you've said it and to give you some tips for that. I have an interesting anecdote here. Uh, when I wrote my book, Essential Evidence-Based Medicine, the first edition I got one really awful review in Amazon. It turned out it was from one of my students. And I called her, and, and basically what she said was, this book is unreadable. I asked her to come meet with me, and we talked for a while. And she said, Dr. Mayor, I'm so sorry, but I was an English major, and so I look at this a little differently. And I said, look, I'll make a deal with you. If, if you edit the second edition, at least as much as you can, I'll give you credit for a month of an elective and uh, write your letters of recommendation, which she did. And it was wonderful because she really made it flow much better and, it, and the, the language sounds much better. 
What, what a wonderful deal. <laughs> yeah. The next thing is the hypothesis, which should be as specific as possible. We all make the common error, and in fact, journals do not say anything about it. I never comment on it or rarely comment on the fact that what we should be doing is giving the null hypothesis, but we always give the alternative hypothesis, which is what we are trying to prove, and clearly identify that this is the primary hypothesis, this is the primary focus of the research, and then you can also give, and you should in the introduction, give some secondary hypotheses if you're going to be specifically looking at other things, that specifically the ones that you've done a priori. In other words, before you've done the research, you said, okay, I'm looking at this. I want to see how fast students can intubate with uh, one technique versus another. And uh, But I'm also going to see how many times they actually intubate correctly. So my primary hypothesis is speed. Secondary hypothesis is accuracy. And, and that makes a difference because you always want to show what your primary hypothesis results are as the ones that matter the most. And having given that example, I might say as, a, as someone reading this study before it was done, say, you know, I think for our readers, it makes more sense to put the accuracy as your primary hypothesis and the time as your secondary hypothesis, because it's the accuracy is really what we care about, not the time. And and we would talk about that, and then you would go ahead and do the experiment. Uh, next one is, what exactly is the intervention? And you have to describe this very carefully, and it should include all the relevant information about it, uh, including things like who's doing it. You know, are these junior residents? Are these senior residents? Are these ultrasound fellows? What exactly are they doing? How is it being measured? How are you comparing the measurement from different people? Who's recording the outcomes? What kind of training is necessary to train the both the people doing the intervention and the people recording the results? Uh, how much does it cost? Cost of the particular intervention? Recently, I reviewed a study of a new complex machine without any information about how much it costs and what are the logistics of doing this in a busy ED? How much did it disrupt or how much did you keep it separate so that it wouldn't disrupt the average processes of regular care in the ED? Are there only a few highly trained researchers or research assistants or did you do it in general with a large group of people with varying degrees of expertise and training? And how does the study intervention fit in with the usual and customary care that we give in the ED. In other words, what, what changes would need to be made in an emergency department if you were uh, using this intervention? And this should all be part of the methods section and to discuss, give the reader an idea of what was done and how you did it exactly so they can replicate it, including the cost. If I'm in a community hospital and someone tells me that this $30,000 machine is going to be great, it's going to be hard for me to replicate that study if my hospital is going to be a little reluctant to spend $30,000 on a machine that I'm just doing a study on. All right, next is the outcome measured. And the outcome measures are, are a very important key point, should be clearly stated, and the scales used to describe them or to measure them should be clearly described describe, also, along with what's the, the degree of subjectivity in these scales. Frequently what I'll see, in fact, most of the papers I review, I'll see them list the scale. And if it's a common scale, like the visual analog scale for pain, well, we all know what that is. We all know how easy or hard it is. We're not totally clear on how 
much variation there is for a single patient given over a period of time, but we have some idea about that. On the other hand, if it's some scale that I've never heard of or that you've found that looks interesting, you need to describe it and describe how likely it is that the measurements involve some subjectivity. And if there is, how did you test for it? And this involves having multiple people use the same scale for measuring this outcome and then checking their inter-rater reliability. One of my pet peeves, and I hate this, is when you say we had three people review the outcome and use some consensus. Well, that's very well and good, but it means that two out of three said it was one thing and one out of three said it was another thing, and they could be very different, and only three people doing it seems like it increases the likelihood that there's an error or a bias, especially if one of those people has a particularly egregious bias in one direction. So having independent observers and measuring the outcome using inter-rater reliability tests, and there are a bunch of them, the Kappa test and the Cohen's uh, test or the C statistic are a couple of common ones that, that you see used. Can I ask you a little bit about inter-rater reliability tests? So from what I understand, is that you take your instrument and ideally you should be testing it on 10% of your sample. And usually it's about, it's, you only need two people to do the inter-rater reliability test. And could you comment on that? Good. Yeah. I'm glad you asked me that in that way too, because the 10% number is one of those magic numbers. It's like no one knows exactly where it came from or what the validity of it is, kind of like P less than 0.05. But basically what you're doing is you're having two people look at the same, out, the same outcome on the same patient, getting the same intervention, and you're having them record independently and blindly from each other, record their outcome result. Then you're comparing the two, and you always should really report two statistics. The first one is, how often did they agree? Just straightforward agree. Did they agree 80% of the time? Did they agree 20% of the time? The second statistic, which involves using a statistical test, is how likely is it that this degree of agreement occurred by chance alone? The idea about this is way too complex for a, a podcast. I would just say, that um, if you're doing this statistical test, what you get is you get the percent agreement that you've calculated, which is just how often did they agree with each other. And then you get this other number that tells you how likely is it that this degree of agreement occurred by chance alone. And that depends on the number of, of observations, the not only the times they agreed, but the number of times they disagreed in each of the possible ways. You know, one says it's A and the other says it's B. One says it's B and the other says it's A. So there, and the statistics involved in that are complex, but if you get a number that's very high, it goes from zero to one. If you get a 0.9, then you can say this is good. The likelihood is that these results did not occur by chance alone. And that in fact, they really were measuring the same thing in the same way. And then you can say, okay, for the other 90%, we'll just have one person measure each, measure the outcome in each patient or in each, uh, for each intervention. So just to summarize, so you, some pitfalls. You talked about it doesn't hurt to give as much information, so needing to be clear and concise. And again, having somebody who can write well in English to review it. And then you mentioned about the hypothesis that that you want to present a very clear hypothesis of 
exactly what you're trying to do. So you have your one primary hypothesis, but then if you might have like a secondary hypothesis that you thought of before the study, shouldn't be like kind of, oh, after the study and the data, you're like, oh, okay, maybe we can make a, a paper out of this data. And then you mentioned about the intervention that we should be very descriptive so people could understand what we're doing and also understand what we're doing in case they want to repeat it and going into a lot of detail of just such as like training of the researchers. How were they trained? Who were they? And then you talked about outcome and that this is the key point should be clearly stated. If they use scales, they need to be discussing them unless they're commonly used scales. They could just maybe use a reference for the scale. If it's something that's not commonly used that they need to discuss that in the paper. And then we ended on inter-rater reliability. So you and I had talked and there's a lot of other pitfalls. I just thought this would be a nice kind of breaking point before you go on to several other pitfalls that you encounter when you're reviewing these papers. Why don't you go ahead and I think you had mentioned something about sampling plan. Yeah. So um, this is where things get a little maybe into the weeds, but it's important that you describe your sampling plan. How are you selecting patients to be either to get the intervention or be in the control group? And there are two basic ways of doing that, consecutive sampling and convenience sampling. Consecutive sampling means that everybody who comes into the ER who is eligible to be approached for the study is approached and either enrolled or not enrolled. And uh, if they're not enrolled, you give the reasons why they're not enrolled. And if they are, obviously they're enrolled. Um, Obviously this means having a research assistant or somebody available 24 hours a day in the ED, which is difficult. We can't all do that. Some studies do that and they have somebody around all the time, but it, it does increase the external validity. In other words, it makes it more valid for any patient who meets those criteria to be given that intervention, Should obviously should the intervention prove to be beneficial. The other process is that you're using this convenience process, which means you only enroll patients who are eligible when there's somebody there. And the issue with convenience sampling is could that bias the types of patients you're enrolling in the study? So you have to be very specific about what your convenience times are and how you're determining which patients get enrolled into the study. We all agree that patients who are seen during the day might be different from those that are seen overnight, and there may be certain characteristics that might lead to confounding the uh, the results. It doesn't make your study invalid to use convenience sampling, but you just have to then show what the convenience sampling process was so that people applying it, trying to apply it to their to their own population would be able to do that effectively. And that's the whole issue of external validity. Sample size. This is a big bugaboo. Do you have to do a sample size calculation? You don't have to. It helps to do it. You should do it, ideally. The lack of it won't sink your study. It is a significant limitation. But remember, it's only a limitation if you find negative results, which is important because a lot of studies do find negative results. I'll get back to Heliox a little later, but there have been a bunch of studies, more than a half dozen, that showed that Heliox and asthma didn't really do much. And all these negative studies got published either as as original research or as research, brief research reports, something like that. So there, it's important that we get those out there. And 
there, the issue might be that you don't have power. You didn't have an adequate amount of power to find that a difference that occurred was statistically significant. But again, report it, report what you did. If the study is well done, if the results are interesting, it will get published if it's written correctly and well. Okay. Dr. Mayor, can I interrupt you real quick and talk about a little bit more with sample size calculation? So one of the things that is always discussed is your study does not have enough power. And so you predetermine the power of your study and then calculate the sample size based on that predetermined like power of your study. And I just wanted to see if you can talk about that because like, there's always a discussion about like, oh, your study doesn't have enough power. And so does that power calculation need to be made before you start your study? Does that even have to be addressed? Does it need to be mentioned in your methodology? It should be. Absolutely should be. In the way, so power is something, I don't know that we talk about it a whole lot, but it seems to be something that confuses people. Power depends on three things. Uh, how big your sample size is, what your effect size is, in other words, what the difference in the two groups is that you hope to find. And that number is based on prior research. What it, other studies find with similar or analogous or comparable research studies. And then the last is the amount of variability, which you have virtually no control over. Uh, so the one that you do have control over is the sample size. And you want to determine for a given effect size, a given effect that was found in other studies with some unknown degree of variability, uh, what sample size would I need to give me at least an 80% chance of finding a statistically significant difference between the two groups if that exists? In other words, if that exists in the universe, there really is that. Mm -hmm. And we use 80%. It's sort of an, a somewhat arbitrary uh, number, but most studies look at, uh, at an 80% power. And so that's what you do. And, and yes, you should do it before you do your study. Um, it's the cleanest way to do it. Again, if you're doing a study that you have absolutely no idea what the effect size will be, and I'll talk about my melatonin studies a little later, I, I didn't know whether melatonin would help night float residents be more alert and more less able to make errors in calculating formulas and reading EKGs, stuff like that. I had no idea because there had been no research done prior to that. So I just kind of went into that blind. I, I suppose I can give you the punchline ahead of time. Yeah, no, go uh, ahead. It turns I, out that what I discovered was that um, Night float residents refused to participate in this study, even though they said they would, <laughs> and they took the first couple of tests, but when it involved doing a cognitive test every single day before their night float shift started, well, after they got off and before they started again and measuring their sleep, I think I had like 34 or so residents enrolled and only two actually completed the study. Oh, no. One melatonin and one non-melatonin, and guess what? They had exactly the same results. So I have no idea if that means that melatonin is worthless or if it means that my study obviously lacked power. That but is a very way. interesting study question. So maybe anybody listening to this looking for a research project. <laughs> Do it and contact, feel free to contact me and I'll uh, give you some pointers about how you might make it so that the residents actually want to participate. Although, again, this was done over about 20 years ago, so maybe residents' thoughts and, and ideas about participating in research have changed somewhat. 
I do know that they're not working as hard <laughs> as we did 20, 20 years ago yeah. when we have work hours. So you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting, that there wasn't any prior studies for this particular study to calculate your, your power calculation and your sample size. So what are your thoughts? And this is what our statistician has asked me to do because I've recently had a couple of those is do a pilot study because there wasn't any existing research that was similar to what we were doing to do a pilot. And with our pilot data, he was able to do a power calculation and determine the sample size that we needed to demonstrate any kind of statistical significance. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, I'm so glad you mentioned it because in a sense, this melatonin study that I described was a pilot study. I mean, we have, if, if you have no idea what you're going to find, then yes, do a little pilot study and just get a feel for what's out there. You know, what's the research terrain on this topic? So I agree with you, doing a pilot study <clears throat> and then extrapolating from that study to give you some idea of what your effect size might be allows you to then do a proper calculation, uh, power calculation. Right. That, that makes sense. So let's continue on to more pitfalls. If you don't mind talking about control groups and blinding would be great. Yeah. All right. So control groups, that's the easy one. If you're doing an intervention study, you have to have a control group. And ideally, they should be the same as the patients who are getting the intervention. There's always an ethical issue. It is not so much of a research methodology issue as it is an ethical issue. Is it ethical to have a group of patients who do not get the intervention? And some of that is ethics within the IRB's sphere of, of domain, their domain of expertise, and something that they would look at. But some of it is your own. After all, you got to remember the FDA requires only that drug companies show their drug is better than a placebo. And I personally have huge ethical issues about that is that, well, if there's another drug that does the same thing or that leads to the same benefit, how can you deny patients that drug just to show that this drug is better than nothing? So that's a probably a whole other podcast somewhere else about the ethical implications of doing research. I really don't have much to say about them. You know, controls are controls and, okay. you know, just make sure that they're the same patients that you're giving the, that they have the same external characteristics that you're giving of the patients that you're giving the intervention to. Any comments on blinding? Yeah, I have a lot to say about blinding, Okay, which obviously seems, it seems like such an obvious issue that we blind people in an intervention. And there are issues that I'll get to in a second about how we blind people. But let me start off by saying what nobody ever does and should do is a test for blinding. And the simplest way to do that is you ask the patients at the end of the study if they know which group they were in. You can just say, you know, at the end of the study, I have a questionnaire. It's got one question on it. Which group were you in, the intervention or the control? And that seems like if, a very quick and dirty. <laughs> right? It is. <laughs> and I, I've know? never heard of doing it that way, but it makes sense. <laughs> there, are, there are more formal tests for blinding. And you know what? I've made it my business not to find out about any of them because it just seems so obvious. You just ask and then you do a statistical test to see whether those whether it's different or not, that people, more people knew what they were in the intervention or 
the control or didn't know. So that's sort of the, the obvious one. When you test for blinding, you do have the ability then to look for either co-interventions, contamination, or confounding that might be present. And if you have, if patients are able to tell which group they're in, then of course you have to consider that this might be due to either a co-intervention or a blinding or something else. If you can't really blind people in person, and this happens with surgical studies, with studies of interventions like uh, testing different uh, airway devices, you can't really blind people to it, but you can blind the, the people who are making the measurements. Mm-hmm. So what's happening more now in surgical studies, and I'm so happy that the surgeons are finally getting this together, is they're doing sham surgery. Now, you have to have a good reason for not doing real surgery. I'm sort of waiting for the sham appendectomy study where what, everybody, what? Gets, everybody gets a drug. It's either placebo and they get real surgery for appendicitis, or they get antibiotics and sham surgery for their appendicitis. And so everyone winds up with a couple of little cuts on their abdomen. The surgeon knows exactly who got what. Well, he might not know who got the antibiotics. That's a possibility. Can you but, talk uh, about sham surgery? Doesn't think, seem very ethical. Yeah, it, it's a huge ethical question. But uh, so this came up first with um, studies looking at interventions for meniscal tears in knees. And finally, what a group did was they did sham surgery. So they the patients were sedated. They had local I think it was done under spinal or whatever. So they were awake and they could see the surgeon with the instrument in their knee, but they didn't know whether it actually went into the knee joint or was just little cut in the skin and then an instrument was placed in that. So it looked like they were getting surgery. The bottom line is they found that it made no difference in symptoms, whether you got sham surgery or real surgery for your meniscal tear. And the surgeons knew who got what, but the people who were doing the follow-up care didn't. All they knew was that somebody came in with a couple of scars and sutures in their knee, and all they knew is that they went in for meniscal surgery, and then they made their measurements and did their uh, scales, uh, pain scales and, and movement scales and everything, and it turned out that there was no difference between the two groups. So just embarrassed to say that I don't recall who the, I think it was relatively young people who had meniscal tears. It wasn't a bunch of us old fogies who, after the meniscal tear, finally wound up with bone-on-bone arthritis. But but at any rate, so yeah, it's an ethical issue, but I think not doing it is even a bigger ethical issue because do we really want to do a, a useless surgery on people, spend billions of dollars doing this, have them undergo unnecessary procedures that could lead to complications and wind up with no better results? I'm still wrapping myself around Mm -hmm. how the IRB approves such a study and how a patient consents to such a thing. (laughs) Yeah, they they did it. I obviously, I don't recall the details. It was about 20 or more years ago, and I believe it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it might have been JAMA, one of those, either New England Journal or JAMA, but they did it, and they got through IRB basically by saying, you know, we're really not sure whether taking out, removing meniscal tears is better for the patient or whether we should just do nothing. And that's going to be as good. You know, everyone's going to physical therapy. And so we'll just do physical therapy. And they were able to convince the IRB that, in fact, there was enough of a question 
to justify them doing this study. Maybe the patients got surgery for free. <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't think of why. I'm sure they, did, they had something. But, Interesting. Um, yeah. Had, had a large grant. So right. what if you cannot blind someone for a study? Well, what does a you, researcher do? Right. So the ideal thing that the researcher does is that they have, huh, it just gets very complicated, but they have the patient, either they give the patient certain instructions and I'll give an example of that. So when I did my Heliox study, we took consecutive patients coming into the ED with asthma. And this was back when we had a lot more asthma, you know, just people coming in for routine asthma attacks. And they got randomized, had an envelope that had different randomizations in it. And either they got Heliox and oxygen mixture, or they got regular room air. And there are a couple of issues. The first was that room air gas containers, the gas cylinders, are different than the Heliox ones. So we had our somebody in the hospital created covers, and we put the covers over the cylinders, so only the little regulator was sticking out. And the regulators were slightly different, different to the point that it was easy for me to see, probably not to the point where the physicians doing the procedure could tell, although some of them said they could tell. So it wasn't really blinded in that way. And the other thing is when you take in Heliox, it makes your voice very squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to, I'm not a very don't, good actor. <laughs> don't don't talk. You told me. <laughs> right? That was when we had this sheet of paper with big printed instructions. You may not speak for 15 minutes after you've gotten your treatment. And the truth is that patients, and we explained to them why, and patients were really good about it. They really didn't speak for 15 minutes. So that, that allowed us to make the measurements. And we were measuring just peak flows, not, nothing more esoteric than that. And, and that, was, that worked out fine. Um, and that's not a huge hurdle to jump through. But there certainly are plenty of other things that we do that, that you can't blind to. And there the ideal thing is you have the patient go to somebody else to make the outcome measurements and you instruct them not to tell the pa the person making the outcome measurements what you know what they got what they sure. what happened to them and and that's the best you can do you know there's there's a lot of situations where you won't get perfect blinding and sure. and that shouldn't totally invalidate a study unless there's such subjectivity involved in the process of doing the the procedure itself that you might have to question it and that that becomes a limitation and let the next person figure out how to try and blind it. So, uh, but at least you've done your, your best to do it. And then there are other situations like the melatonin study that I told you about where blinding was easy. The pharmacy made up identical capsules and there were bottles that had a week's worth of melatonin and bottles that had a week, week's worth of identical looking placebo. And the residents were just given a bottle at the beginning of the week and say, take these after your shift, after your night shift, you take these and they'll help you sleep during the day, we hope, and make you more fit for cognitive reasoning afterwards, we hope. And as I said, you know, 34 residents signed on to do the study when they actually had to do it. They didn't, but that was a different issue. How about just a couple more things on the pitfalls? Mm -hmm. If you can just comment, I think in the most ideal world, if you can double blind a study, you see those kind of studies. What do you, they actually mean by double blinding? Okay. Double blinding basically just means that the patient doesn't know which intervention they got and the 
treating physician, person, whatever, doesn't know which treatment they got. Ideally, you'd like to have triple blinding, which means that the person evaluating the statistics doesn't know which group got which, but that's much less important. Some people try and make it a big fuss about it, but not. It, it really isn't a big deal. But at least that some someone getting the procedure doesn't know. The person with the meniscal tear doesn't know if they got real surgery or sham surgery. And the surgeon knows, but the person measuring the knee, whatever, two, three, six weeks later, they don't know which group they were in. And since the patient doesn't know, the blinding is maintained. So that's okay. When you when you sure. get into trouble is where you have something you can't really blind and the patient really isn't blind and, and you just it is what it is. And, and you, have you to describe that it. in your limitations. And of you your describe study. it in your lim that's <laughs> the kind of thing that limitations are for. You know, it's not well, you know, we only we have a population that's only descendants of, of the Dutch. And so we don't know if this if this study would be applicable to people who are descendants of Danish. Like, oh, it's like I, I see this kind of thing in in the limitations section is like, really, you know, just don't waste my time. If you have a real limitation, like we couldn't blind people, here's the best we did. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe someone can come up with a better way of doing this. And if we had to spin out about the, the possible results of not blinding them, this is what we think might have happened. And that's why we think, although we got good results, they may not be that good if it was really truly if we were truly able to blind. And before we leave this topic on study design pitfalls, can you talk about randomization? Because you had yeah. mentioned that while it's acknowledged that even computer-based randomization programs are not truly random, so which is a little troubling, but what did you mean by <laughs> yeah. that? I, I don't know. I, I feel like when you say that even computer programs aren't truly random, we're, we're kind of getting into the weeds there. That's, okay. you know, it's like you do the best you we can. We do our best. Okay. Right? Okay. And uh, I mean, if you have a bunch of little envelopes with the randomization noted on each one and they're in a big pot and the person just dives in and picks one out, what's wrong with that? You know, that seems good enough. They can't read. They don't know which, which one they picked out because there's, each one is in an envelope. And that, by the way, is called allocation concealment so that yeah, you got a big pot of stuff. There are a bunch of envelopes. They're all the same mm -hmm. color. They look exactly the same. They've been licked by the same person, licked shut, and you just grab one. To me, that's reasonable randomization. If you want to do get fancy and do a computer code, well, that's reasonable too. The thing you don't want to do is you don't want to allow the person who's doing the study at the point that they're doing the study, the person administering the, the intervention or selecting the patients to be in one group or another to know ahead of time which group the patient was randomized to. So for my money, concealment of allocation is far more important than what scheme you used for randomization. Very um, important. I mean, point. if you want to get really technical, there's a book called The Drunkard's Walk, and it talks about the whole process, the whole concept of randomness in nature. And the conclusion is that the way a drunk person walks is the only truly random thing that occurs <laughs> in nature. <laughs> so, and I, I'm not sure how accurate that is, but I'm, I just accepted it because it sort of made sense to me. Also gets, gets a laugh out of it. Does. <laughs> so before we leave this topic, 
What about identification of confounders and other risk factors? I know you have something to say about this. This is a huge, huge bugaboo. It's like, how do you identify what a confounding variable is and whether or not it affected your study? I mean, technically, the definition of a confounding variable is that it did, it, it, it has the ability to affect the results and that presumably it occurred more in one group than the other. The fifth grade version of randomization is, actually, maybe it's the junior in high school. I've got a granddaughter taking statistics this year. She's going into a junior year. Maybe that, I'll find out what that version of randomization is, which is that randomization is done to equally distribute the confounders. That's not exactly true, but without getting into the details, randomization is done so that statistically you're likely to have confounders in both groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to leave it at that because it gets into the weeds also. Okay. Um, but the idea is that what you should do is after you've done your study, you've got your baseline data, and you look and see if there's a, a significant difference between the two groups for one or another of the baseline variables. And that's there is, important to report, yes. Then you say, well, this might be a confounding variable. Well, how do you know? Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things that you can do. Some statisticians have proposed something called the E-value. Other statisticians have totally debunked it. I have looked at it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But what does make sense is that you then you do a multivariable analysis. Now we're getting into statistical mm-hmm. weeds, but these are big ones and important ones. Mm-hmm. So you have two analyses. You do one, your original analysis, what was the outcome for group A and group B, and were they statistically significant, the difference? And then you do it controlling for that one confounding variable. Fairly easy to do. Uh, Any statistician can help you do it. And then you look at the difference between those two. You know, were they really different or not? If they weren't really different, then yes, it could be a confounding variable, but unlikely to affect the results. Not as big of a deal. So that's the best way that I know to, to get around doing that. Very interesting. Let's kind of change topics in, in a way, but related. So you have mentioned that many studies use wrong statistical tests. Many emergency physicians don't have a strong foundation in statistics, and most of us, like me, rely on statisticians. So I thought now we could do some rapid-fire questions on some common statistical errors, pearls, and pitfalls about these tests. So first thing, so when not to use chi-square, ANOVA, T-test, and the Wilkerson test? (sighs) Basically, what I... My, what I believe is you shouldn't ever try and do it te- not to use them. Those are the ones you should use for almost any study you do. But you got to ask a statistician. And mm-hmm. um, if the statistician says, okay, then do something more complicated. It always, the, it, it always gets me interested when I read a study that used some weird test. You know, why did they use that test? And I'm not a statistician. I didn't do very well in my statistics courses, but I feel like I understand what statistics is trying to do and I can apply them. So I run off to my famous, my favorite statistics book, Wikipedia, and I see what they have to say about it. And then I kind of go back and I see, well, 
and this is me as a as a reviewer or an editor mm-hmm. trying to see whether it's really legitimate that they use this different statistic. And and sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Most of the time, if it is, I can't find out why. I can't figure out why. And then it goes back to the authors. You know, you need to explain why you've chosen this rather than what appears to be an obvious place for the chi-square test to be used. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, but I always, always wonder if they're trying to hide something. I was going to ask you that, if that should be a red yeah. flag as it a reviewer. Definitely, definitely should be a red flag as a reviewer. Now, most journals now are hiring people who have expertise in methodology and statistics. They're not, no, I'm sorry, that was the wrong word. They're not hiring us. Well, they are hiring us. They're just not paying us. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was wrong about that. (laughs) To be um, statistical reviewers. And, And I don't do that. I don't hold myself out as a statistical reviewer because I just don't feel that I know enough real statistics to be able to say, yeah, this is okay and this is not. But and then the, the, the other thing is when I see an, an unusual statistical test being used, I wonder, did they just do this because someone figured out that it would give them a p-value less than 0.05? <laughs> um, this gets me into my rant about p-values because we have become obsessed. And I know that I'm not the only one saying this. I know this is becoming more and more mainstream, finally, becoming obsessed about p less than 0.05. P-value just tells you the likelihood that the two results were different occurred only one in 20 by chance alone. Mm-hmm. That is, you're pretty safe in saying that this probably didn't occur by chance. P-value says nothing about how good the result is, whether it's important or not important, and we'll get into this a little later, but just that it's there and that we found a difference and the likelihood of that difference having occurred by chance alone is less than 1 in 20. And that's all you're doing. What makes much more sense and being much more honest and straightforward about our results is to use confidence intervals. Now, what are the confidence intervals? We can still give the P-value. And there are some general rules of confidence intervals. If two confidence intervals don't overlap, then it's pretty likely that those groups are different. If they overlap, then maybe, maybe not. And there are some some more rules that you can apply. But at least you get a good look at what the uncertainty is for each of the measurements and then the uncertainty of the two measurements together. So everybody should be reporting confidence intervals in their data. Yeah, and you report p-values too, because yes. we need to know what the p-value sure. is. If it's obvious that the confidence intervals don't overlap, then we know that that p-value is less than 0.05. But when there's a little bit of overlap, maybe, maybe not. Can you just, on that note with confidence intervals, what is a good confidence interval and what is, like, when it's really wide? Okay. <laughs> or just if you could just kind of touch on that, just to sure. give people a, a perspective of what it means. Like everything else in statistic, it's all about the sample size. Mm-hmm. If you have a huge sample size, you're going to have very narrow confidence intervals, unless there's a huge degree of variability in responses. On the other hand, if you have a very small sample size, you're going to have big confidence intervals, regardless of how good the data is. The confidence intervals are going to be bigger because you have fewer patients, fewer Mm -hmm. subjects. The size of the confidence interval doesn't matter nearly as much as whether they overlap. That's really the key. I mean, yes, you'd like to see the size 
especially if you're just looking at a single number, you have a, a number needed to treat and you have a confidence interval. Does it go from two to a million or does it go from two to four? Obviously two to four. And what, what the confidence interval tells you, it's in the name. How confident mm -hmm. am I that my result is really true and didn't just occur by chance? So if it's between two and four, I'm pretty confident that this is a really good result. On the other hand, if it's between two and 398, well, you know, at 398, that's not going to be important. So I'm pretty confident that I'm not confident about this being a good result. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. So what about dealing with multiple outcome measures? What are your thoughts on no, that? This is very common, and um, you'll see it done all the time. Basically, the more outcome measures you have, the more outcome results you're looking at, the more likely it is that one of them will come up statistically significant, in other words, showing a difference that occurred supposedly less than 1 in 20 by chance alone but that result really only occurred by chance alone. And there's a way of figuring out what your likelihood of doing that is. But here's the bottom line. The bottom line is you have one primary outcome and the p-value for that is the result of your study. We had a p-value mm -hmm. less than 0.05. There's less than a one in 20 chance that this result occurred by chance alone. We had 20 variables that we looked at. Turned out that one of them is statistically significant. And my favorite example is the reanalysis of the results of the ISIS trial. ISIS was a big uh, study on different therapies for myocardial infarction done back in the 90s. And what they found was that if you had a certain astrological sign, and I, I'm going to say it was Libra and Capricorn, but mm -hmm. I don't hold me to that. It might have been two different ones. You were much more likely to do better and if you had certain other signs, you were much more likely to do worse, by st you know, statistically. Well, that clearly is, well, I shouldn't say clearly is garbage, because I don't want anybody who really believes in astrology to poo-poo me um, because of that statement. But what the authors then did was they took another set, and they did the same analysis and found it was different astrological signs yeah. that led to the results. So whether your astrological sign means anything or not, I'm not making a judgment about, but I can tell you that we're pretty sure that those results that occurred in the ISIS studies were all, all by chance alone, when yeah, in fact was there's not, no was not Was not scientific. That's Just correct. like that recent study that came out, I don't know if you saw it, that if somebody says it's quiet, <laughs> oh, yes. your volume increases. Right. Yes, the Q uh, word. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was entertained by that. Anyway, so let's talk about clinical versus statistical significance. Good. And I'm so glad you asked about that. And the answer is a little bit of a mouthful, but the bottom line is clinical significance is, significance is in the eye of the beholder. And remember what I said earlier about p-values. P-values don't tell you anything about the strength of the results, whereas clinical significance depends on the strength of the result. You know, how much are you willing to allow your patient to, how much, how much uncertainty are you willing to allow your patient to have when you give them a particular treatment? And basically, we came up with an answer like 25, 30 years ago, and that's number needed to treat. And what number needed to treat does is it gives you an idea of how many additional patients need to be treated in order for one patient to get benefit. How many patients need to be treated for one additional patient to get a benefit? If you have a number needed to treat of two, that means that 
every time you treat two patients, one of them gets a benefit that they wouldn't have gotten with the placebo or with whatever your comparator was. So a very low number needed to treat is good. Obviously, the very high number needed to treat uh, 365 means that you have to treat 365 patients for one additional patient to get benefit. Whether you do it or not kind of depends on the patient. And we've had a big debate on this in emergency medicine regarding the, the use of TPA in stroke. You know, should we or shouldn't we use thrombolytics? And I'm kind of jumping ahead on, on what our questions were, but that's really what you, where your idea of clinical significance comes from. So statistically significance just says this difference that I found, was it, did it occur by chance alone? What's the likelihood it occurred by chance alone? And less than 0.05 is one in 20. Such an important concept. I always tell people that evidence-based medicine is not just the science. It's your experience and it's that person in front of you. Right. You know, and you kind of, you know, we talked about just shared decision-making and I think that's where this really comes in, into play. So it very is. important point. And it's why we devoted a whole chapter in the book, uh, Essential Evidence-Based Medicine. We devoted a whole chapter with how do you communicate this with patients and Probably as a result of COVID, in the third edition, we added a chapter on EBM in the media mm -hmm. and how well do media sources report uh, evidence and how well should they do it. Actually, that's perfect segue into my next question. What about relative rather than absolute differences? Okay, so this <laughs> is one of my main big bugaboos about everything. <laughs> Um, the media. <laughs> there are two statistics, relative risks mm -hmm. and odds ratios. And they're, well, odds ratios are abused all the time. And the reason I say this is that odds ratios have a particular reason for being used. You basically, it's the odds of a particular event, an outcome happening in, in the group that's exposed versus the outcome of it happening in the group that's not exposed. And it's very useful when you do studies that have a relatively rare outcome in populations that have a rare outcome. And for that, the, and, and when you do a case control study, so you've selected cases and controls, the relationship in the real world between cases and controls, in other words, the outcome, is very different from one-to-one -one or the numbers that you've assigned in your study. And so we use the odds ratio as a surrogate marker, a surrogate measure of the relative risk. Relative risk is very straightforward. It's like if I have a percentage of patients who had the outcome in the group that was exposed, I compare that to the percentage of, of patients who had the outcome in the group that wasn't exposed, and that ratio is the relative risk. It tells you how much more or less they are likely to have the outcome based on whether they were exposed to the risk factor. And a cohort study, a randomized trial, which is a special case of a cohort study, those are the ones that should be using relative risk only. Now, having said that, there are places where you sh could use odds ratios. And this is a more of a mathematical than a real-life medical term. Now, so one place is when you're doing multivariable analysis, and this is where I get in over my head, and so I'm just going to come up for air a little bit and say that apparently it's much more difficult to do a multivariable analysis using relative risk than it is using odds ratios. Having said that, what I said before about looking for confounders doing a multivariable analysis, 
whether you use odds ratios or relative risk doesn't matter a whole lot if you're comparing univariable and multivariable analysis. You're just comparing two, the same statistic two different ways. The place where it could have an effect is that, in general, odds ratio overestimates the relative risk, which is why you shouldn't use odds ratios in a cohort study, especially one where the outcome is relatively common. Mm-hmm. All right, so where else should you use odds ratio? Well, you might use it if you're doing a systematic review with a meta-analysis. And again, it has to do with the mathematics that's involved in doing the, um, doing the calculations. Having said that, it is my understanding that there are ways of getting around this and using relative risk properly, but I'm going to let a real statistician talk about that. That sounds like a good idea. Now, the other <laughs> issue, the other issue that's much more important is that as a reader, as a critical reader of the medical literature, you should recognize that relative risk is a relative term. So if you have a relative risk of 1.5, what it means is that the outcome is 50% more likely than the comparator. This makes a huge difference if you're publishing a newspaper because you can say, if you get your COVID shot, you're 50% more likely to wind up with an achy arm, making that up, of course, because I have no idea what that is. Now, if the baseline risk is one in a million, then instead of one in a million getting an achy arm, you're going to have one and a half in a million getting the achy arm. Does that really make a difference? Mm -hmm. Well, no, of course it doesn't. On the other hand, if the baseline risk is two, then a 1.5 relative risk of 1.5 means you're now going to go up to three. So like two and 10 is going to go up to three and 10. That makes a big difference. And patients want to know that, you know, is if, if I say it's one goes from one million to one and a half in a million, the number needed to treat is monstrously large and doesn't really matter. But if I go from one, two and 10 to three and 10, that's a big number needed to treat. It's a, a 10. So for every 10 patients, one additional patient is going to have this this outcome. So at any rate, using relative risk is fine because it gives you a number, but you should also use absolute risk. In other words, presenting all that data, relative risk, Mm -hmm. absolute risk, number needed to treat is the right way to do it. If you use odds ratio, which I'm saying people do, fine, but then give relative risk also because sometimes the difference between odds ratio and relative risk is gigantic. Studies that show an odds ratio of 20 point, 25, mm-hmm. and you then use this, those statistics that they gave you, calculate the relative risk, and it's like three. That's the difference between overwhelming and huh. And the reason I say huh is that in my world, or maybe in just my pea brain, any relative risk less than four has a pretty significant risk of being affected by confounders. Whereas if it's more than four, it's pretty unlikely. So anyway, having said that, if we talk about what's important about odds ratios and relative risks, we go back to one of the key studies in medicine. In the 1940s, Richard Hill and Richard Dahl, who were both uh, British epidemiologists, decided to do a study on smoking and cancer. And they found a bunch of British doctors who had lung cancer, and they compared them to a matched control group that 
didn't have lung cancer. And what they found was that the people who had lung cancer were 25 times more likely to be smokers, which is equivalent to an odds ratio of 25, which is big, very big. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that should have been enough to get everyone to stop smoking. Remember, this is 1952, I think they published their paper, and it was 1965 was the Surgeon General's report, and 1972 was when I gave up smoking. So people weren't paying attention. And in fact, if you go back in history, back in the Civil War, the people called cigarettes coffin nails. So they knew that it wasn't good for you, as opposed to 1600s in England, where they thought it cured all sorts of things. But it was new and nobody knew anything about it. But anyway, so just as, as an example of when to use odds ratios and when to use relative risks, if you're doing a case control study, use odds ratio, and it should give you a good approximation of what the relative risk would have been had you done a cohort study. The reason to do a case control study is because it's a rare disease. And lung cancer, no matter how much it's related to smoking, it's still pretty unusual. Most people who smoke do not get lung cancer. And so it was legitimate for them to use that study design, the case control study, to study that topic. And it was reasonable for them to say this number, 25, is actually pretty close to what the relative risk would be had we done a cohort study, which would have been much harder to do. But anyway, interesting. I think no, I answered the question. You did very thoroughly. And I, I liked your last comment because I think it really brought it, brought it home. We just have a little bit more to talk about. And I think we're going to be at a time I could, I love talking to you about this stuff. You make it very interesting. Cool. And, and I love talking with you about it too. This is... <laughs> so, this, um, so the next one is just when should you use sensitivity and specificity and what about reporting likelihood ratios? Okay. This is another one of my pet peeves. And when we're talking about diagnostic studies, my opinion is, and I know people will disagree with that, but I don't care because I'm right, is that you should use sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratios always. Mm -hmm. And you should never use predictive values. And here's why I say that. So predictive values depend on the prior probability of disease. And having said you should never use it, I meant never use it in reporting study results. Where should you use it? You should use it looking at the patient in front of you. Because what you're going to do if you bother doing Bayes' theorems calculations is you're going to take your pretest probability and you're going to plot it on the little nomogram, the Fagan nomogram from the 1970s. And you're going to have your likelihood ratio from your study about a diagnostic test. And then you'll come up with a post-probability, post-test probability. And that's when you should use predictive values, because that's what the post-test probability is, the predictive value. And that's the only time it should ever be used. Now, if you're writing a paper about a diagnostic test and you come up with your numbers, sensitivity, specificity, and likelihood ratio, I think it's perfectly legitimate to create a table X in which you say, if you were in the emergency department and you saw a patient like this that you were doing this test on, what would the post-test probability or predictive value be for A, B, C, D, E, F? And here's what A is zero or 1% pretest probability. That means you're almost sure the patient doesn't have it. B is 10%, which means you're pretty sure they don't have it, but there's a fair amount of uncertainty, about a 10% prior probability. C is, I don't know, 50-50. D is pretty sure they have it, 
90%, and he is almost certain they have it, 99%, because we can never quite be 100% sure. Nothing's 100% in right. medicine. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Now, that kind of brings it to the bedside, you know, how you can take this information. It and does. Apply it it does indeed. Well, I think we're out of time. This was wonderful. I'm just so impressed by your knowledge of all of this and appreciate you being here and sharing it with us. For those of you listening, I know for many of you like me, statistics does not come naturally to you and can be one of the most intimidating parts of doing research or just simply reviewing research studies. So I just wanted to mention there are so many resources out there to learn more about this topic, such as Dr. Mayer's book, which is truly excellent. I believe, as I mentioned, and you just finished your third edition. Congratulations on that. Thank you. There are also several courses and free online resources. So I do want to mention that SAM has a course called ARMED, which is Advanced Research Methodology Evaluation and Design, which are three workshops and monthly webinars, and it is fantastic. So you could look it up on the SAEM website. So anyway, so I think that concludes our podcast, Dr. Mayor. Thank you so much for being here and all of your knowledge. I think we could do many podcasts with you. I mean, you just have such a wealth of knowledge. So we really appreciate your time. Well, you're very welcome, Lynn. It's been a real pleasure for me to do this. And I'd be glad to get into more weeds any other time, <laughs> more about this at another Wonderful. time. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. me.